If you own sunglasses, you know that scratches happen. With Revent Optics, you can replace your lenses and save your sunglasses. Revent Optics offers high-quality polarized, non-polarized, and prescription replacement lenses for any brand. Starting at just $24 a pair, they're crystal clear, guaranteed to fit, and backed by a one-year warranty. Go to reventoptics.com MLB, that's capital R-E-V-A-N-T, capital O-P-T-I-C-S dot com MLB today, and get 20% off your first pair of lenses with offer code MLB. And make sure to watch The Ringer's new live reaction show, Talk the Thrones. Each week, Andy Greenwald, Chris Ryan, Mother of Dragons, Mallory Rubin, and our very own maester, Jason Concepcion, are coming to you live after the East Coast airings of Game of Thrones Season 7. Talk the Thrones will stream exclusively on Twitter and Periscope right after each episode ends and can be found on The Ringer's Twitter handle, at Ringer. Andy, Chris, Mallory, and Jason will be reacting at the same time as you, contextualizing the events and explaining everything that just unfolded. Again, the show is called Talk the Thrones, and you can stream it live after the East Coast airings of Game of Thrones season seven on your Twitter and Periscope at Ringer. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show, part of the Ringer podcast network. My name is Michael Baum and I'm a staff writer at the ringer.com and joined for episode 100. Ben, yeah. can you believe that we've done a hundred episodes of this? Well, we haven't, I guess. I haven't yeah, I guess been here since true. the beginning. And <laughs> neither of us has been on all 100. But yes, collectively, we, The Ringer, have produced 100 episodes of The Ringer MLB Show. So that's pretty cool. Thanks, everyone, for helping us get to this point. Yeah, and thanks to our producers or whoever decided to number these, because not every Ringer <laughs> podcast gets numbered episodes. Yes. So. That's right. Yeah, big centenary episode here. Yeah, wow. So we've got a couple guests coming on. We've got Chris Getz, former big league infielder and uh, Chicago White Sox director of player development, and Liz Rocher. Big Getz for us. Yeah, big. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. It's probably still your I do the intro, and all of a sudden you're full of jokes. I don't know what's going on. (laughs) Yeah. So we're talking to Chris Getz. We're going to talk about Yoan Mankata and player development in general. And we're going to talk to Yahoo Sports baseball writer Liz Rocher about her weekend at Baseball for All and the mm-hmm. future of women in youth baseball and associated topics. So that's a, yeah. a fun discussion. And uh, yeah, looking forward to talking to Liz. Of course, Stacy Piagno, who was on the show last year, is having more success with the Stompers this season. So I'm interested in following the development of this story and also excited to talk to Chris because the White Sox, I think it's safe to say, have the consensus top farm system in baseball. They almost have to, given the sheer quantity of top 100 guys they have right now and gets is the guy in charge of making sure that those prospects become big leaguers so i'm excited to hear from him also a good opportunity for me to ask about numerous college relievers who the white Sox drafted of course so we'll see how that interview shakes out and whether ben gets so mad he kicks me off the podcast (laughs) during that during that interview but before we do that we should probably talk about bryce harper who came down awkwardly on a wet first base bag on saturday night hyperextended his knee it looked a lot worse than it actually was because on sunday morning the nationals came out and said that there was no ligament damage just a bone bruise so harper's going on the dl i mean there's no timetable for his return at this point but this does not look like the kind of injury that's gonna knock him out for the entire rest of the season and the playoffs and possibly you know as much as the first half of next year so this was panic time across the baseball world for a couple hours on saturday night but it looks like he's he's avoided the worst case scenario 
Yeah, I am pleasantly surprised to hear that news because the way that it looked, the way that his face looked, the way that his whole body looked as he was writhing on the ground after this injury and the angle that it looked like his leg went just seems like the angle I associate with season-ending injuries. So I'm happy that that's not the case because Bryce Harper's in the midst of what could be another MVP season and we'll have to see how long it takes him to get back. But obviously they've got a month and a half or so to get him healthy before the playoffs start and we've seen all the best players in baseball get hurt at some point this year whether it was trout kershaw harper and hopefully they're all back by the time Carlos it matters. yeah right sure yeah so hopefully this won't end up costing anyone in the playoffs but it's uh never fun to see one of these guys go down yeah and you know as much as it would have helped the dodgers if the nationals had lost their best position player this just from a like a competitive standpoint you don't want i guess this is not really a dodgers issue but you you know, you do want to see the teams that they would have to go through at their strongest. So I think we're all assuming that, that Harbor comes back at something resembling full strength for the playoffs. It would have been, it almost would have been too sad to be ironic if uh, Harper had torn his knee ligament stretching out for first base the same way Adam Eaton had back in yeah. April. But you know, it looks like him and, you know, and, and Nolan Arenado took a pitch off the hand on Sunday afternoon and his x-rays are negative. So as far as we know, you know, that's another MVP quality player who very narrowly avoided missing the stretch run in the playoffs. Yeah, and I'm always fascinated by the question of how much hustle is the right amount of hustle because we've seen Mm -hmm. this earlier in Harper's career where he would just go all out and he would hurt himself and then he'd be unavailable or compromised for some period and it seemed as if this season he had found a lower gear where he could just play at sort of a more moderate speed and, and preserve himself and yeah, if this had turned out to be a season-ending thing, then you have him and Eaton going down the same way on one team. And I've written about this before because when Robinson Cano was on the Yankees, he had this reputation for not busting it down the line and he would just jog and he would not do what Eaton did and what Harper did on these plays. And I looked into that at the time because he cultivated this reputation so strongly that it seemed as if Yankees fans didn't even mind when Cano signed in Seattle. It was like, well, good riddance. He was never hustling anyway. And maybe that was partly body language, but I found that that reputation was deserved. This was a few years ago at Baseball Prospectus. I looked at the rate of Cano's infield hits, and I compared it to other left-handed hitters and guys who hit ground balls in the same directions and tried to make it as precise as possible. And I found that he actually had been costing himself like four infield hits a year relative to another player with the same batted ball profile, which has a real value. But on the other hand, he said at the time, I don't run all out because I want to stay healthy and I want to preserve my energy. And mm-hmm. he did to that point in his career. He had been extremely healthy. And I think the only DL stint he had had to that point was trying to beat out a double and hurting himself, pulling a muscle on the way. So to me, it's hard, I guess, to get a player to tamp down his competitive instincts. If he's someone who is programmed to go all out, maybe you can't just say, well, selectively don't do that. But when you're the Nationals and you have this huge division lead and it's really just about getting people to the playoffs in one piece, you almost just want to say, don't worry so much about that single. But again, hitters have so much at stake, statistically speaking, a guy like Harper, who will have a huge free agent deal waiting for him. So he wants every hit, but also he wants to stay on the field. So 
It's a tough thing when you see a guy go down for a single, which has value, but not as much as staying on the field. Yeah, I I think a lot of the world's problems could be solved if everybody just tried just a little bit less. And I think that that's a a lesson we can all take from the various career paths of Robinson Cano and and Bryce Harper. Yeah, but at the same time, like these are, it's hard not to talk about athletes like they're racehorses. Like they're, they've trained their entire lives to go all out and do X, Y, and Z and, you know, do everything full speed. And that's, that's just got to be a really tough thing to just switch on and off depending on whether or not you're 15 games up in the standings right. or whether you're you know whether that infield hit matters mm-hmm. in that moment so to a certain extent i wonder if harper can or even should change like mm-hmm. this is part of this berserker mode that he's got is part of what makes him so great yeah. so at this point i'm just relieved that that he's not going to be out because you couldn't really tell with the angle on the on the broadcast whether they got like that you see football players when they tear their acl sometimes like the top half of the leg will sort of shift over sideways you know you couldn't tell if he'd like done the full Marcus Lattimore there from that one angle but Mm -hmm. and one more thing I just Mm -hmm. want to say calm down American League wildcard race (laughs) yeah (laughs) I don't think it's going to yeah it's (laughs) it's so weird like I I think Jay Jaffe wrote about this last week that the division races are are fairly well settled for for this point in the season yeah and they're all exactly the teams that we thought they would be right this was a prop (laughs) That, like the, right. that we had before the season. I think the, the mm. all the teams that we thought were going to win the, the various divisions are going to do that. So mm-hmm. it's good that we've got this this one, all of the weirdness in this baseball season has trickled down into the second <laughs> wild card spot. And yes. every night it's, oh my God, the Angels are a game out of a playoff spot or the Mariners are in sole possession of the second wild card or the Royals, you know, the Royals have lost 13 of their last 14 games. It's not exactly that, but it, it feels like that from time to time and mm-hmm. they're still a game out of the wild card so somebody like take control of this race it's very very weird right now and it's making me uncomfortable <laughs> yeah, hashtag <pretty> analysis <laughs> yeah we are pre-recording because i'm gonna be away when people are hearing this so we can't cite exactly the state of the race as you are listening to this but as we are speaking there are seven teams within a game of a wild card spot eight teams within a game and a half and then a few more that aren't exactly out of it so it's really pretty crazy i mean there are only a a few teams that you could really consider out of this race the white Sox and oakland and detroit perhaps and other than that everyone is at least close enough to the periphery that you can dream and that's a good thing i suppose because otherwise we wouldn't have much to look forward to for the rest of the season make it really really easy to plan travel and stories for you know for playoffs preview coverage but i guess our luck is is only so good my favorite thing about this is everybody's got a negative run differential (laughs) yeah that's true there are are, as of as of the time we're recording there are five teams in the american league with a positive run differential and the Mm -hmm. you look at the wild card standings and it sorts and you got the yankees on top at plus 115 and it's just a ton of red ink it's like the top of a golf leaderboard it's awesome (laughs) yeah (laughs) All right, should we get to our first gets? <laughs> okay. I'm not. You no, know, if you're going to make the jokes, you got to do the sound effects, too. I don't think I have that app. Sorry. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Let's bring him on anyway. All right, let's do it. 
So we are joined now by Chris Getz, who many of you remember from his own big league career. He played seven years for the White Sox, the Royals, the Blue Jays. He was a White Sox player. His job now is to make more White Sox players. He was hired late last year as the team's new director of player development. And I'm curious about whether your job has gotten harder since then or easier since then, because on the one hand, you have been there now for this incredible rapid rebuild in which the White Sox have acquired this just wealth of of minor league talent, the likes of which I'm not sure that we have seen in recent years. So on the one hand, you're not being asked to get blood from a stone or anything. You have a, a ton of talent in this system, which would make it easier to develop players. On the other hand, it's just so many players that are promising and talented that I would imagine it's hard just to devote enough resources to each of them and figure out where where they all go. And, you know, there's a, a lot of attention and pressure now when it comes to prospects because people pay attention to this and people know that the White Sox have added a, a ton of promising young players. Uh, you know, it, certainly it brings its challenges. You know, it was going to bring its challenges prior to even acquiring all of this talent. But really, I think it's enjoyable. I look at it as an opportunity obviously to develop these guys into kind of the vision that we all have. And those are the reasons why we acquire these players. I think I've got the best job in baseball to be able to be a part of someone kind of reaching their dream and and building these guys into championship type players. You know, obviously I'm honored to be a part of it. I I was part of this organization. I I was drafted twice, came up to the major leagues. I've been through the development process here and now to give back in a sense, you know, something I look forward to. And, and I've, I've enjoyed every day since I've been back here. And obviously, with as we acquire more and more quality talent, I mean, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. And, you know, we're starting to kind of see kind of the fruits of the labor slowly here at the major league level now with Yuan Moncada. You know, he, he's starting to kind of turn the corner while he's been up here. Uh, we've got Reynaldo Lopez pitching tonight. So kind of one by one, this this group, it's starting to, to break into the big leagues, and it uh, makes for uh, you know fun on a daily basis. Where in the process of acquiring these guys do you get looped in? Like, do you get a call like, oh, we're trading for Mankata, or did they say, we're thinking about trading for Mankata, what do you think? Or do you just sort of leave that to the scouts? Well, you know, I guess in the acquiring Moncada and that Chris Dale trade and Adam Eaton trade, it was during the, the winter meetings in which our group is out. We were in Washington, D.C., so we, we had our representatives from our scouting department, player development, uh, other front office members. So you're a little, you're kind of in the guts of it all. Granted, it's a lot of legwork leading up to acquiring someone like that. So it's kind of case to case. Now, the other trades that were a little closer to the trade deadline, you've got guys, you know, me in particular, Buddy Bell, guys more on the PD side. We're out and we're seeing our guys. We're at at each affiliate. So it's more phone conversation, kind of up to speed and in the loop on what's going on. But obviously, our, our daily responsibilities are the talent that we have. So, you know, you catch wind that this is going on. It's a real possibility this might be done at a certain point here. And then you start, okay, if this does go through, where are these guys going to go? Where do we fit? Where do we best fit them for their development? So who makes the decision or, or which people are involved in the decision about when a guy is ready to make that debut, whether it was Moncada, whether it was Lopez? Is it you making the call? Is it a combination of you and Rick? Are other people involved also? It's a, it's a group effort. You know, a, certain players are going to devote a little bit more attention, maybe a little bit more thorough conversations. 
a little bit more, uh, it's going to be maybe a little bit more of a process versus like a, a knee a knee jerk reaction. This is what we need right now. Who do we have? Um, but these guys that we focus on that we envision as long-term pieces to be a part of kind of what we're trying to accomplish here. Those are kind of ongoing conversations. You kind of may look at the calendar, may, may fit here. How's he been playing? Things like that. So more of an ongoing group effort. And then at the end of the day, you know, it's going to be Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams who are, are uh, going to have that final say whether this is the time to do it. What does your day look like? You know, how, how many days a, a week are you on the road? And what do you do when you go out to, to see one of your minor league affiliates? Yeah, it, half the time I would say I'm on the road, maybe 60% on the road, 40 at home. Obviously, you've got the games at night. So let's call it the typical night. We've got six games at seven o'clock. We also would have a DSL game that would be played earlier on top of uh, obviously the major league game. So you've got those games. After the games, you've got, well, you're following those games. And nowadays with technology, you're, you're able to watch a lot of these games, uh, even though you're not there. You know, there might be something that comes up during the game that you're, you may have to make a move based on an injury, something like that. So you, you may have a phone conversation with a manager, a coordinator after the game, collect kind of all the reports that are put in there, go through them. Uh, does anything stand out? Just kind of those reports really paint the picture of the games that you're not there. I like to do the same thing in the morning just in case I didn't miss anything. Maybe a few more conversations. You know where your coordinators are at throughout the year. So, if you know, you've got a pitching coordinator at a certain spot, Michael Kopech through or whoever through, you know, what did you see last night? Just constant communication, really. Um, you you want to be everywhere, you know, because you want to be, you know, obviously that's not a reality. But I think it's just I like to just talk to our staff, trust our staff listen to what they have to stay or have to stay. And then obviously the, the day kind of develops. You're preparing for the games that night. Uh, may touch base with the manager or uh, just to see how, get a pulse on things for, for that particular game, who we're going to face that night. Mm-hmm. So I know that prospect rankings vary considerably by source. I'm sure your internal rankings differ from the public rankings. But right now, as we speak, you guys have nine of the top 66 prospects on the MLB.com pipeline list. And that is still including Moncada and Lopez, who are still rookie eligible. So is there ever a point at which you get a a traffic jam and you just kind of have to promote a guy because (laughs) there's just too many quality prospects? at one level you just have to make sure guys are getting the instruction that they deserve and uh, you know this is just I mean no other team compares to this right now so it's a a challenge that is unique to the White Sox at the moment you know those there are times where you know if we've got two second basemen or two shortstops where you do have to make a decision on uh, you know you might have to put this guy here or this guy there obviously most important is giving this guy's opportunity Certainly, you want to give them opportunity at the right level, but there are only so many spots on a, on a baseball field. But, you know, we've been pretty fortunate that we haven't had too much layover. It's relatively spread out. You know, with, with our starting pitchers, we've been able to find homes for them. Uh, position guys, the same thing. If you look more of our, our high A, low A, we've got some outfielders, some places that, you know, we've got four or five outfielders where, we need to get these guys at bats. They deserve at bats, but then we'll rotate the DH. And so those guys are still out there and they're still playing, still able to develop. Ideally, would you like them to be playing their position every single night? Yes, but certainly we'll, we'll, we'll take what we have here with, with the amount of talent we have and have to 
rotate a DH. So, we, you know, I wouldn't say it's really come to a problem that we have too much talent. I mean, this is uh, what we're trying to do here is, or what we set out to do and what we've been able to do in terms of bringing these prospects in, our goal. Um, it's been pretty fun to watch Rick and Kenny kind of uh, accomplish that goal in terms of the amount of top prospects or top 100 prospects. So you're on the phone every day to, to coaches and coordinators throughout the minor leagues. Who do you find yourself reporting to above you most often? You know, Buddy Bell, I work with very closely. Obviously, he's a very experienced guy from a, a PD side, managing side, player. You know, I lean on him. You know, and then, you know, you have Rick and Jeremy Haber, guys kind of in our office. Kind of depends on what we're doing. Do we need to go pick up a player somewhere? You may re- rely on guys from your uh, pro scouting staff. But mainly I would say Buddy Bell. And, and, and you know, that that's really dependent on where I am, too. If I'm in the office, I'm going to have convers- more conversations naturally with guys that are in the office. On the road, probably more guys just on the PD side. Mm -hmm. So you know that White Sox fans are kind of looking ahead and forecasting and already penciling in these prospects as great major league players. And obviously that is premature in many cases, but it's totally understandable that fans would do that. It's uh, one of the best things about following the team right now is just imagining what it might look like a few years down the road. So to what extent do you and, and maybe Rick have to do that sort of thing Obviously, you have maybe a more realistic outlook on the likelihood of all of these guys panning out and turning into great players, and you know that that never really happens exactly the way that you draw it up, but it must be valuable to look ahead two years, three years as you're putting a roster together and as you're planning out, okay, we're going to invest in free agents this year, we're not going to. You kind of have to get a sense of when the talent might start to arise, right? So to what extent are you putting ETAs on players and trying to envision what the major league roster might look like two, three years down the road. Those conversations definitely exist. You know, there's a window here. Every organization has, has a window, you know, granted you don't want to force players into that window either because you want them to fully develop, you know, but when you start picturing some of our the starting rotation coming together, you get the Copacs and the Lopez's and the Giolitos, you know, guys that aren't really too far off. Certainly there's going to be further development when they get to the major leagues. And, you know, it takes a little bit of time sometimes for these starting pitchers or any player that's going to break into the big leagues. But hopefully they're kind of in their prime together and we'll get a handful of those years. And then, you, you know, you look at the outfield of Eloy Jimenez, uh, Luis Robert, you know, you got Blake Rutherford that'll come into the picture. We've got some other guys that will just develop over time too, but you do start putting these pieces together and envisioning this team. And we've got a pretty good idea where we think, when we think these guys are going to be competing together at the major league level. You know, with a couple hundred minor leaguers, you've got probably dozens of of specialized, personalized training programs in terms of what skills you want guys to work on. But there would be like an overarching organizational philosophy of, you know, this is what we want our players to do, how, you know, how we want them to grow, how, you know, how we, we want to teach them. So how much of that gets, gets rewritten every year and who's involved in that process? Well, you know, obviously every, every player is different. So you're going to put an individual plan together for that guy to reach his ceiling through the scouting process. You know, you read the reports, how did they see him? Where did they project this guy to be? And it's our job in the development side to carry out that vision. So are there going to be some some adjustments along the way from our plan? Yes, because there's a human beings and the game take over and you kind of evolve from there. 
But you're, you're having constant conversations. We're having meetings on each guy. Is this guy where he needs to be? Do we need to kind of maybe change a little bit something here? Do we need to approach him a little bit different? Are we reaching this guy? So it's kind of an ever-evolving process in which that's what makes PD kind of a beautiful thing. And as long as these guys are progressing towards the vision that we initially had, I think we're going to be in a pretty good place overall. How do you plan to evaluate whether it's working? I mean, there are probably many ways to to try to assess that, and it's on an individual basis. But if you want to get a sense, I don't know, say the middle of next year, the end of next year, are we along the timeline that we had hoped we would be? How would you go about trying to establish that? Would it just be kind of a a sense from the reports that you've gotten and the stats that you've seen and that sort of thing? Or is there a more, I guess, quantifiable way to tell whether players are progressing at the pace that you hope that they would? A combination of quantifying it and then just the sense that you kind of have through the experience and being around guys that have gone through kind of a similar process or organizations that have gone through a similar process. You know, I was fortunate to spend some time with Kansas City as a player in the front office there. And, you know, their starting points were a little bit different, but they did collect a handful of talent over there. I was actually still playing. You heard about these players. Everyone was talking about these players. And then one by one, they started breaking their way into the major leagues. And, you know, it wasn't easy for these guys. It wasn't easy for Hosmer and Moustakis, Danny Duffy. There were some setbacks along the way, but I think the kind of overarching belief was, listen, we need to be patient here because we know that, you know, this is going to be difficult, although these are highly touted players and we expect them to be stars. This isn't going to be just push button. You know, once in a blue moon, you know, you'll come across the Mike Trouts of the world and Chris Bryant, who seem to just kind of get into the big leagues and their stars from day one. But I think the reality of it, even though, although we identify these guys to be future, you know, all-stars, it's going to take some time. So when they break into the big leagues and, you know, all of a sudden we may not be winning the ball games that we would like us to be winning, or these guys aren't performing up to kind of our future expectations, just be patient. Over time, we believe that these guys will become those players based on the body of work and we've seen these guys through the PD side, even from the amateur side. So you got into the front office not too long after you retired. I'm curious how you figured out that you wanted this job or that you'd be good at it. Why you didn't decide to go try something else after your playing career was over. You know, as I was kind of wrapping up, right, I, I kind of knew, you know, my career was nearing the end. You know, in Kansas City, I, I, I was actually kind of interested in what they were, what was going on over there. And as I was leaving, and that's when they were starting to, you saw it come together. We started winning at the end of 13, made a little late run there. Obviously, 14, they went to uh, the World Series, and 15 went again and won it. But I was really interested in that process, you know, and I and I built some solid relationships over there with Dayton Moore, J.J. Piccolo, many others. And, you know, as I could tell my career as a Royal was ending, I, I went a different direction. You know, we kind of, uh, we stayed in touch and Dayton was like, listen, if you want to, if you're interested in staying in the, involved in the game in some way, you know, let's have that conversation. And then I, I went on and finished up my career with the Blue Jays, took the summer off, uh, got in touch with Dayton and they had a, a bit of a reshuffling in their front office. And I was fortunate to be able to kind of slide in there and kind of walk into a World Series at the same time. But, you know, it, it's baseball. I was passionate about it. I, I've lived it. I certainly want to be a part of building something. You know, I really was interested in the scouting side of it. I'm interested in the analytics side of it. I'm interested in, in, in just developing winning ballplayers, guys that are 
championship caliber players, but not only ch- championship type players, but also leaders on and off the field. This whole thing was uh, really building these guys into something that can be longstanding. How's the job different from how you expected it to be when you first got into the front office? You know, it's it was more <laughs> the, the eye-opening thing was I Sometimes as a player, I wonder why, why did they do that decision? Why did they do that? Why did they go with that player? And, you know, once I got to the front office, I got a better understanding. And really it was, had a lot to do more on the scouting side. And I looked back at, you know, at the Royals and they, they had these players that they drafted, they developed, they identified as guys that were going to be part of their future. And I'll, and then I was up there as a major leaguer. I felt like, man, I, feel like I might have a little shorter leash or something like that. Well, I, I was, I was a certain type of player. I was identified from a scouting perspective where, you know, there wasn't a little, there wasn't much room for error for me. I kind of had to go out there and produce these other guys, these higher tooled guys, guys with better skills. They're going to give them a little bit more leeway. Now the competitor in me wanted that leeway, but I under, now I have a better understanding of what their their kind of long term what they were trying to accomplish by going and doing that. Are there any player development practices that you saw either when you were coming up as a player or when you were in or other organizations that you thought either wow this is a great idea I'm going to implement this if if I'm ever in this position or the opposite like this is not a good practice I don't know why teams are still doing this this is not working for me I'm not going to do that if I ever get the chance yeah i mean a little little bit of both i would say that i think what I, what i take out of my experiences the most in the pd side was just the you know the communication with the player have clear objectives for the player because so these are really good athletes if you really present to them what, what the type of player that they need to be a lot of these guys can go out and figure it mm-hmm. out they'll have them they'll be more receptive to the information but sometimes I felt that, you know, a lot of times they just kind of, okay, the players got to go out there and figure it out on their own. Guys would kind of be hands off, didn't want to say too much. And, you know, they wouldn't really meet the expectation, but well, they didn't really know what the organizational expectation. So to be able to present that to the player, I think sometimes they'll surprise you and be able to go out there and accomplish kind of that vision based on the fact that they're just really good athletes that are playing professional baseball. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, still, I think, a disconnect in some cases between how players evaluate themselves and how teams evaluate players, right? Whether it's looking at kind of process-oriented stats versus results-oriented stats, you'll still see players judging themselves by runs batted in and batting average and that kind of thing that teams might know about but are not really basing their decisions on. So. Are you guys making an effort to communicate to your players, hey, this is what we're looking for, these are the goals that you have to achieve, and it maybe is not those traditional stats, maybe it's not even something that they're aware of at, at the point that they enter your system? Sure. I think there, there are times to, to present that information. You know, a certain guy might be getting really frustrated by not getting the typical production, whether it be his batting average or his ERA or something like that, where we can kind of clean that up a little bit and make them feel better that, listen, this is the reason, you know, whether it's from a bat, batting average with balls in play, hard hit balls, their swing rates, contact rates. So we can kind of, hey, this isn't as bad as it thinks. I mean, we, as you may think, we've got a player in, in, uh, in high A right now that his batting average really isn't probably up to his expectations. Um, but if you look at his, his, uh, his on base and his slugging, his run scored, there are still pieces to this that he should feel good about. So he certainly psychologically, I don't want this kid to beat, beat himself up. 
because not only is it his first full season, but there's a lot of positives in there. So it's case to case. Sometimes you want to present this information. Sometimes some of these guys just don't need it because it's really based on their, their psyche or what they're able to, just like anything else, you don't want to uh, give them too much information and just kind of that paralysis by analysis. But then you have some guys that really can flourish with that information. So it's on it's kind of uh, our job to figure out who those guys are and present the right information. So one really interesting problem that front offices and player dev staffs have to figure out is how to keep young pitchers healthy. And I'm curious how, I guess this hasn't really been a huge problem for you guys recently because most of your high college pitcher draft picks have been relievers over the past couple of years. But how do you manage like that first year workload and, and slowly ramp these guys up to the point where they can throw to 200 innings in a year and are situations like what the Dodgers face with Julio Urias where they were extremely conservative and he got hurt anyway like does that just sort of make the whole problem seem even more intractable than than it looks on the surface yeah and, and just piggybacking on Michael's question that's been such a strength of the White Sox at the major league level with Herm Schneider and, and Don Cooper keeping pitchers healthy that I wonder to what extent that is transferable all the way down the chain well sure we, we've you know Don Cooper you know he, he came up in PD he was involved in PD he understands and kind of a process there and then you have him at the major league level and he's accomplished what he has up there certainly we believe in our arm care program we've been able to have guys that pitch 200 innings and stay healthy um, we've been able to tap into guys that maybe have been a little bit off course and bring them on course when they become White Sox you know when we get these players into our system once again they, we have an overriding philosophy but it really is kind of a case-to-case thing but you know so, some of these guys might be coming off a of Tommy John surgery and that's why we were able to draft them where we did and when we bring him in that first full season okay his cap's going to be a little bit different than the other guy I would say that we're kind of in believers that we've got to get guys out there and get innings under their belt. You know, Michael Kopech, for an example, you know, he, he uh, because of some, some things that happened over in Boston, he was a guy that really, I mean, we, we envisioned him as a starting pitcher, but he is not, he had not pitched, he pitched 50 some innings last year. He had some fall league innings. But you look at the body, you look at his delivery, okay, we need to get this guy out there. He's going to be able to, to handle a healthy workload. Certainly you don't want to overdo it, but you kind of, you need to get those innings because he's getting a little bit, he's getting closer to the major league level. But also throughout that, you, you watch him pitch throughout the season. Is he starting to get a little bit gassed? Is he starting to have deeper counts? Is he, is he getting fatigue? And then you may uh, make an adjustment there, you skip a start, or you may get to a point where it's like, okay, we've kind of reached that We've plateaued a little bit. This was a very good season for him. We reached out and we accomplished what we wanted to accomplish. And just as a follow-up, the one thing they say is one of the big factors for arm injuries is pitching through fatigue. And there's only so much that you can observe from the outside. You got to get to a point where you trust what a pitcher says about whether he's tired or not. And a lot of these guys have been coached to to pitch through it since you know they were they were preteens. So how do you get to a point where you get those pitchers to trust you to tell you the truth about what's going on with their bodies? You know, a lot of it's just communication, and I, and I think we've built a pretty solid reputation as an organization in developing pitching. You know, we've got our training staff, strength and conditioning training staff, PT, that are with these guys. They're hands-on with them. They see them kind of go about their day. We Obviously, we're witness what they do on the mound that night. All that information that, that kind of tells us where this player is. You know, fortunate nowadays that we've got TrackMan information. We've got some data that kind of 
okay, this is that his release point is maybe changing. His spin rate, um, his ball is starting to do something different. Let's look a little bit deeper. What's going on here? Is it connected to a breakdown <laughs> in the delivery? Is the breakdown in the delivery has something to do with the fatigue? So it, it's really having those conversations and then being able to communicate it effectively to the player. We alluded earlier to just the incredible depth of coverage of the minor leagues these days and of prospects and of the White Sox specifically right now. So I wonder whether there is any utility to you, to the team of following that information On the one hand, I guess it's useful just to know how your players are perceived, whether it's by the fans or by the industry. But also, I wonder whether you ever learn anything from reports from outside parties. Obviously, there's so much that they don't know. But on the other hand, maybe they don't have that stake in it or their judgment isn't clouded by the personal attachment to the player. So I wonder if there is anything that a team like the White Sox could get out of monitoring reports from outside parties on on your players. You know, I I think it's good. Certainly you don't want to get caught up into it too much. But if they, you know, let's say uh, whether it's a publication or maybe even another club, and you've got access to some of this information where they they find value in this player that maybe overvalued or they value more than we do. Let's look a little bit deeper here. I mean, we've had we've had some pictures here. You know, I can think of one off the top of my head that from the typical prototypical scouting perspective. Okay, it's kind of it doesn't really grade out that well here. And the stuff's just a little bit short across the board. But he's getting outs. He's being effective. Um, and he's just kind of cruising along and having a good year. Well, then you look a little bit deeper or you, you start reading about this guy, whether it be in fan grass or baseball perspectives, something like that. And this guy's getting a little attention. Okay. Let's just look a little deeper. What's going on here? Who does he compare to? And then it, it can kind of help you really, it just helps you kind of stay on the guy. Don't give up on these guys. And you will find guys throughout your organization doing that. Um, and that's, I think, one of the greatest values of, from on the PD side of having all this information out there. When I found out we were going to get the chance to talk to you, one question popped into my head, and that's, what the hell did you guys do with Alec Hansen? Turning him from a guy who couldn't throw strikes his junior year to college to you know, somebody who looks pretty much straightened out at this point. You know, our, our scouting department just did a phenomenal job. They, they were on this guy right from the beginning, stayed with him, let's put it that way. And when we got him in there, you know, and I, I can't really speak to Alex's college experience, but when he got, it was almost like he could take a deep breath. It was just a guy that really embraced professional baseball, the kind of the pace to it. But, you know, we've got some guys with, with pretty good experience. And, and he, we have a, a pitching coach, Matt Zaleski, that was in Great Falls, and now he's in Kannapolis. He's kind of been with Alec along the way. And they really hit it off, and we just really came up with some keys to keep this guy where he needs to be is when you have bigger guys, typically the delivery can be a little bit more challenging to, to stay in sync. And he was just rushing out. Really, it was just rushing off. He wasn't staying back over the rubber, and his arm was getting caught up behind him a little bit, and his timing was a little bit off. But once we kind of got good rhythm to it, good sync with it, he got more confidence. His arm was getting out on time, and he was driving the baseball down and through the zone. He's always going to be a guy that's going to be able to pitch up in the zone. I don't want him to live up there, but he gets swing and miss there. 
And then on top of that, you got a breaking ball that kind of complements uh, the way his fastball works and a changer that works too. And all of a sudden, we've got pretty good package here for Alec Hansen, and he's certainly been able to repeat that this year. My last question, I just uh, wanted to ask about Moncada. I think White Sox fans have already gotten a sense of his skill. We saw on Thursday, he had the game-tying homer and then the walk-off single, and obviously they're hoping for many more heroics like that in the future. What kind of things is he still working on? What kind of message is the organization still giving him about things to emphasize? And how does the ability to work on those things change once you're in the majors and you're playing every day at that level? You know, I can speak for, for his time in Charlotte. I, you know, obviously he was having a lot of success. Was there swing and miss there? Were there some strikeouts? Were there some things that, man, I, I wish he didn't do that. But really it was coming out of his approach. I mean, mechanically, he's in a good play. Physically, he, he can do so many different things. It was really just being disciplined within the at-bat. And it reached a point where, okay, He's accomplished a lot here in Charlotte. I think it's time for him to go to the major league. Will he get exposed a little bit because of when he does come out of his, his, uh, his approach? Yeah, probably. But knowing that he's such a good athlete and a competitor, that he's going to want to kind of close that gap and make that adjustment. In which, I don't know if you guys watched the game last night, but he drove the ball to tie up the ball game in the ninth inning, that home run to left field. He's such a powerful guy. He's able to drive the ball to the opposite side. And with that, when you stay on the ball like that, he's going to be able to react his balls in and stay on sliders. And it should kind of clean up some of that swing and miss. It's just a matter of him going out there and executing and staying within that approach for me. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been fascinating just to watch the team stockpile all these prospects, and it will probably be even more fascinating to watch them develop and make their debuts over the coming years. So good luck with all your work, and thanks again for coming on and talking to us about it. You got it, guys. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Okay. Let's take a quick break. We'll hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back with Liz Rocher from Yahoo! Do you have a pair of sunglasses with scratch lenses or keep buying pair after pair of new sunglasses? Instead, you can save your sunglasses and replace your lenses with high quality polarized, non-polarized and prescription replacement lenses available for any brand on the market. Starting at just $24 a pair, Revent Optics lenses are a fraction of the price of brand name sunglasses. And because they test their lenses to ensure razor sharp clarity, they're a much better option than cheap gas station shades. Revent lenses are easy to install, guaranteed to fit and backed by a one year warranty. So join over 500,000 customers and try them risk free with their 60-day money-back guarantee. Plus, enjoy free shipping and returns in the U.S. And get 20% off your first order when you use the offer code MLB. Go to RevantOptics.com MLB. That's capital R-E-V-A-N-T, capital O-P-T-I-C-S dot com slash MLB. RevantOptics.com. Replace your lenses. Save your sunglasses. And if you're like me and you're not so great at planning ahead when it comes to travel, I've got good news for you. There's this awesome app called Hotel Tonight that helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute. It sounds counterintuitive, but unlike flights, hotel rates usually get cheaper at the last minute. And Hotel Tonight helps hotels sell their unsold rooms, allowing them to pass those deals along to you. These aren't last resort places. They're actually cool top-rated hotels that you want to stay in. And with so many awesome partner hotels in a ton of different countries, Hotel Tonight can help you find a great hotel almost anywhere. It's perfect for a spontaneous getaway or finally going on that trip you've been wanting to take for a while. I'm going to be on a trip when you're hearing this. Going to Vancouver and BC. Going to go see the eclipse in Oregon. Of course, I failed to make hotel reservations early. Hotel Tonight comes in handy because even though the app's name is Hotel Tonight, you can book up to a week in advance. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. So get in on these killer last minute deals and download the Hotel Tonight app now. 
So if you've been listening to this podcast from the very beginning, you will remember that the very first guest I had on the show, I believe on episode two, was Big League Stew writer Liz Rocher. And she is back because she has been in Rockford, Illinois, performing feats of journalism. Uh, Liz, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good, thanks. How are you guys? Good. good. So you were in Rockford, Illinois for the Baseball for All tournament, and you wrote about it at some length, and there's a video on, on Yahoo Big League Stew, so... Give us the the overview. What you know? What is it? What were you doing there? Well, it's the largest and until recently the only all girls baseball tournament in the country, and that's why I was there. It was created by Baseball for All. It was co-sponsored by the International Women's Baseball Center, the Rockford Parks District, and a, a number of other people. And the purpose is just to let girls actually play baseball with each other, which is something that they pretty much never get a chance to do. So it was a three age divisions, 200 girls, 17 teams, and they played for four and a half days. It was wonderful. Mm -hmm. And the most poignant part of your story, I think, was just about talking to the girls. And most of them have never played on an all-girls team. Many of them play on co-ed teams or are the only girl on their team in some cases. And just hearing the quotes that you got about how they felt and just how they felt like there was less scrutiny on them and that people weren't condescending to them in the way that they usually do, you could really get a sense from that of the challenges that you have to face to play baseball as a girl beyond a certain age because just all of these forces are trying to funnel you towards softball. Yeah. I mean, the the thing that stuck with me is that every time I would ask one of the girls, you know, you play it and all on a boys team at home, he said, yeah, I play on a co-ed team. I'm one of the only girls. You know, I would ask, is it hard to do that? And everyone Every one of them would immediately answer, not really, it's fine. And then I would say, well, do you want to talk about that more? And inevitably they would come up with, you know, some guy's dad said, you know, you should be playing softball or, you know, someone from the other team said they shouldn't go very hard on me or a bunch of dudes from the other team are making fun of me because I'm the only girl on my team. They want to push that aside because baseball is so important to them. You know, and I can't blame them, but it's, you know, kind of heartbreaking that, they only get this experience of playing with other girls once a year, you know, at least playing against other girls. There are five teams at the tournament that were created sometime in the last three years, especially to compete at this tournament. And they've stayed together and they've continued to play, but they never get to play against all girls teams. They're playing against boys teams and co-ed teams in their community, but they're not part of any league. So, it just really stuck with me how how much they sort of have to go through to do this. You know, the the mental toughness they have to develop to just continue to play with boys and tell themselves, this is fine. This is what I have to do to play baseball because it is what they have to do. So this is not, you know, the issue of girls baseball is not something that I thought about a whole lot growing up because it just, you know, didn't matter a whole lot to me as a guy. But, you know, as you start, there was a, a light bulb moment I had a few years ago where somebody just expressed it to me this way that the women's version of baseball is not softball. It's women's baseball. So did they talk about the importance of, of playing baseball or is, you know, a woman who works in baseball, what's the, the importance of getting girls into baseball? instead of just shuttling them off into softball and then trying to, you know, sort of reintegrate them back into the culture later? You know, how does it help to get girls actually playing baseball? Well, it, it helps them, you know, shuttling girls into softball. Softball is a fine sport, but it's not the same. It's different. And 
softball is looked at a girl's version of baseball, you know, in that it, you know, the ball is larger and things are different. And that's just not true. The, you know, the girl's version of baseball is girl's baseball. There is no girl's version of baseball. It's all just baseball. And girls should get a chance to play. You know, they're shuttled off into softball because it's easier to do at this point. Softball is so entrenched. It's just easier to tell a girl to go play softball uh, instead of integrating her into, you know, the co-ed team, the boys team. That's sort of what was interesting about these girls is that they did, they did not care. A lot of them said, you know, I... I am the only girl on my team. You know, a lot of them were approaching high school and said, you know, I'm being here. I know I'm not going to be the only girl I've ever met who's playing high school baseball. You know, it's it's a big deal for them to sort of force their way onto these teams. And listening to them talk about what baseball meant to them helps them build confidence. They feel strong and powerful. They feel like they're just as good as the boys. A lot of them feel that they are better than the boys, which is something that I love. I just love that they're on this team of all dudes and like, I'm clearly all, I'm clearly better than all of you already. So it's important to keep them going in baseball if that's what they want to do. Forcing, like there should be no forcing. If someone wants to go play softball, they can't. My favorite points of the weekend were when I would ask, I'd ask a a group of girls about softball. You know, do you have plans to switch to softball? How do you feel about that? They would just boo, spontaneously booing me. (laughs) You know, like you mentioned softball, boo. (laughs) Yeah. And you mentioned that Baseball for All's website says there are around 100,000 girls playing baseball, which is not an insignificant number. And it seems as if there is a groundswell of support building here, or at least awareness of the issue because of this tournament that you covered, because of pitch, because of the 25th anniversary of a league of their own, because of the success success that Kelsey Whitmore and Stacey Piagno and others have had with the Stompers. And we've talked about some of those things on the show. We didn't get to talk about a league of their own on this podcast, which we probably should have because Katie Baker wrote a great piece about it for The Ringer. But you were mentioning that even though this piece is much older than all of the girls you were talking to at this tournament, they all knew it and loved it. So can you tell us a little bit about the resonance of that movie and and the significance of it to these girls 25 years on? Well, I mean, some of the the girls, when I would ask them if they had ever seen it, would look at me like I was insane. Like, of course I've seen it. It's the only women's sports movie I'm aware of. It's the only one where women are playing baseball. How could I have not watched this? Right. You know, they all had a different way of looking at it. But the thing I was kind of moved by is, you know, I am not a I'm an older sister. I've got two younger sisters. I am not a fan of Kit. I think she's annoying. Uh, yeah, she's I, the worst. She is the worst. Um, <laughs> the number of girls who picked her as her as their favorite character was mind boggling because I asked like I had to ask them. And they said, well, she's she's an underdog. She's beating the odds. She doesn't let Dottie keep her down. She knows what she wants. I'm just like, well, this makes so much more sense now, as opposed to why are they picking the most annoying character? They're picking the character that has the most to overcome, the most to prove. And so that just made a lot of sense to me. I mean, as far as favorite scenes, they they like the same scenes everybody liked, but they all, the majority of them loved the scenes where the women were all playing together. They loved the, the, uh, the tryout scene at Wrigley Field, which is a favorite of mine too. 
So they they all love it. I kind of wanted to shuttle them all into a theater. Like, let's watch this together. So there was, you know, the legacy of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League is throughout, you know, it's why this event was in Rockford, Illinois. And, and you mentioned that there were a couple of double A GPBL veterans at the at the tournament. So did you get to talk to them or, you know, sort of watch them watch all this going on? And, you know, what was what was their reaction to it? They uh, were around for the opening ceremonies and the, the tournament was spread between three, see, two different sort of facilities and like four different fields. And so everywhere that I was, they usually weren't. So, mm. but I did get to see them at the opening ceremonies and Maybelle Blair, who likes to insist that May Mortobito was based on her. And I, I don't have a hard time believing it. She is this tiny older woman with this giant hair. She's got this big, big hair and she carries a cane that is a modified baseball bat that she was apparently not allowed to bring on the plane there. They considered it a weapon in the hands of this older, in this in this woman who I think is at least 90. But she was full of life and so thrilled. She actually got up, um, the microphone had cut out during the ceremony at one point. She got up and just started yelling at the crowd. You know, I am so happy to be here. This is such an honor. It's great to watch all you girls play just like I did. You know, they they really loved being there and seeing them. The girls all loved having that type of history around. It was really it was really neat. I saw a handful of them watching the youngest girls and sort of occasionally yelling tips at them. It was wonderful. And you mentioned in your story that Monet Davis is back on the radar when people are discussing this issue. She was pitching at a, a tournament earlier this year, and she has moved to softball. Do you know if she is at all outspoken about this issue, or, or did she resent having to move to softball as opposed to continuing to play baseball? I I don't know if she did or not, if she does mm -hmm. have any feelings about that or not. Um, in a piece I wrote, I want to say back in April, about the Trailblazer series, which is the other, now the other all-girls baseball tournament in the country, I wrote that I don't know if she loves basketball more. Maybe she feels she's more talented at it, but she's moving towards that. She wants to be a, a college basketball player. Mm -hmm. And I can't blame her because she might be incredible at baseball. She might be, you know, one of the best, but we're not going to know because there is no way for her to play baseball professionally. Yeah. You know, there are there's some leagues, you know, sort of here and there around the country for women who play. But there's nothing big. There's nothing organized. There's nothing at all like the WNBA. And so that it, that is one of the ways that they're just letting girls down because, as much as they want to give them opportunities to play baseball when they're young, once they get to a certain point, there's literally nowhere for them to go. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if you, and this goes back to the, the baseball softball divide, because this is one of the obstacles to women getting jobs in baseball, you know, let alone playing, but like scouting, announcing jobs, you know, front office jobs that they just by nature of the organization of the game frequently lack the playing experience. So you get, you know, odd former softball players in, in broadcast booths and things like that. But did, you know, did any of the girls who talked to express ambitions of, I want to, you know, try to play high school, college, you know, maybe even professional baseball, or I want to be a scout or I want to be a broadcaster or anything like that. Well, one of the girls who's in the, the video in one of the videos said, I want to be a major league baseball player. But if I don't get to do that, I at least want to play high school baseball. I thought those were both very, you know, 
Those are admirable sort of goals, you know? If I can't be the first woman to do this, then I'm fine with just playing high school baseball. A handful said that they wanted to play in the majors. You know, one of them said, I want to play, but I don't want to be the first. I think that would be too hard. I hope there are others before me. And I, like, my heart just broke. Like, she already knows this is hard. Like, it's hard for her to do this just normally. But if she loves baseball and wants to keep playing, the fact that she already knows it's nearly impossible for her to do it at the level she wants to is just, why? Why does that exist? Why does that have to happen? Why do why do girls have to have their dreams crushed at such a young age for almost no reason? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned in your story that something's got to give here because girls are being encouraged to play baseball more often. You mentioned that Major League Baseball even is encouraging girls to play in their RBI program, and you can't really encourage them to play at a young age and then at a certain point say, okay, well, that was fun for you, and <laughs> now it's over. So you kind of have to provide some place for the women who want to continue playing to go. So What do you think the future is? Do you envision a WMLB of some sort in the future? Is that the way that this is trending? I would love for that to happen. I I think that there could be nothing better than for Major League Baseball to put time and money and effort into a professional women's league. I think I just don't think they know what type of support there would be behind it. I think there would be a lot. You know, how... What a great goal that would be for girls to have that there is a professional league that they can, that is their dream to play in. I don't think MLB is going to do that. I think everything that they've done to support girls playing baseball so far has been token. It's just been tokens. It's been, it's been crafted PR moves. I think the Trailblazer series was great. I think it's wonderful that MLB said girls should come and play baseball here for this weekend. But then they trotted them out in front of the Jackie Robinson statue. And they tweeted a picture that said, you know, Trailblazers meet the original Trailblazer. And I'm like throwing things at my computer because what are you doing? You're comparing these girls, you know, you're, you're setting them up for failure. Essentially, you're saying, keep playing, be a trailblazer, but we will in no way help you or support you or give you a place to play or in any way assist you on your journey to do this thing that we actually don't even want you to do. So it's so frustrating. I don't even really know like how they can fix it because it would involve like a, a huge organizational shift. Yeah, a WMLB seems like the kind of thing that Rob Manfred would say, oh, yeah, we're open to that in an interview, and then we never hear about it again. And, you know, that's a shame because you and I have talked about, you know, women working in baseball and the unique obstacles that women have to overcome to get into this male-dominated environment. One of those things, like you look at someone like Becky Hammond becoming an assistant coach in the NBA, you know, she's helped so much by her 15-year playing career. She has extensive actual basketball playing experience, and that's just so hard to come by. And right now, this has been a, a success, and the Trailblazer series was a success, but it, these are sort of pockets of grass roots support and i you know i wonder if if that creates a viable path to some sort of you know nationwide girls baseball organization you know even without support from major league baseball even without some sort of top-down mandate it'll take a long time for anything like that to happen i think that the generation of girls we're seeing play baseball right now who are so far past title title nine who are being told that it is their right to play baseball i think that the more of that 
there is, the larger the, you know, the grassroots movement will grow. I think this could be the generation of girls that eventually, maybe not when they're in their prime playing days, but maybe later on, will demand that baseball give them the place they deserve. I think it's coming. I just think it, it's going to take a long time to build momentum towards something like that. All right. So this is my last one. This is hundreds and hundreds of players and, and coaches and parents. And I imagine this would have to be one of the least male baseball environments that you've ever been in. So what was what was that like, you know, having this space you know, without the crushing maleness of that you usually experience <laughs> in the sport? <laughs> well, first off, the, the girls were ultra thrilled that I was a woman who was writing about baseball. A few of them like, God, there's a woman writing about baseball and she wants to write about us. And like, yes, that's me. That was very heartening to begin with. But it, I mean, it was all about the girls all weekend. You know, I feel like it, that's exactly everything there feels like exactly how it does at a, a little league tournament where it's almost all boys. The girls are fooling around, you know, they're joking with each other. The parents are, you know, trying to herd them like cats. You know, it didn't feel any different, but it was just wonderful to see the girls feel sort of unburdened and happy to be together. You know, a lot of them said, I've made friends for life here and we've played together for one day. You know, that's the type of connections that are made when you're playing in an atmosphere that you're really comfortable with. You know, I encountered a lot of parents. Uh, I encountered one major league baseball player. Dave Bush was there. He was the coach of his his uh, oh, I just his daughter's to Dave team. Bush last weekend. Yeah. Yep, he was there, um, and he was you know very supportive of all of this. But it was not a very male weekend. You know, there were some dads there who were like, "Come talk to my daughter. Don't talk to me. Talk to my daughter." I'm like. This is exactly what I want, you know? I was so welcomed. They were so happy to have someone who wanted to talk to them and tell their story. And it was, I don't, I think I talked to maybe two men all weekend. <laughs> well, you've just talked like to 50 yeah, two girls, for, 50 for girls and minutes, like four so. dudes. It was great. <laughs> well, we're, we're happy that you decided to double the number of, of men that <laughs> yes. you talked to and, and uh, <laughs> come on the pod. It's a great story. You should go on uh, Yahoo's Big League Stew and, and check it out. You can find Liz on Twitter at Liz Rocher. Liz, thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, so that will do it for this episode. Apologies for any moves that Jerry DePoto has made in the last few days that we couldn't play the song for. We don't know about them yet as we're speaking, but we'll catch up. I'm sure he's been busy. We did hear about the Andrew Albers trade just before the end of this episode, but look, that's not good enough. We know you like the song, Jerry. We know you whistle it when you're in elevators with Michael, but we talked about the Ernesto Frieri trade last time. We can't just play the song every time you trade for a AAA reliever. It's got to be a real move. Got to have some standards here. Also, we can say you the song if you want it. The next episode, as always, will be on Thursday. You've been listening to The Ringer MLB Show, part of The Ringer Podcast Network. Thank you, Michael. Talk to you soon. Bye! Don't 
let scratches be the end of your sunglasses. Save your sunglasses and replace your lenses with Revent Optics. Revent Optics offers high-quality replacement lenses for any brand, starting at just $24. With over 500,000 customers worldwide and an average rating of 99.7%, Revent Optics guarantees incredible clarity and a perfect fit or your money back. Get 20% off your first order with code MLB at reventoptics.com MLB. That's capital R-E-V-A-N-T, capital O-P-T-I-C-S dot com slash MLB. Things change. The weather changes. Your mood definitely changes. So why lock yourself into plans that might change? With Hotel Tonight, you don't have to, because you'll get incredible deals on awesome hotels even at the last minute. Booking on Hotel Tonight gives you the freedom and flexibility to play things by ear while knowing you'll get a great price and a great place to stay. So download the Hotel Tonight app to find seriously amazing deals now.